0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sechnis. i Chris. How are you doing this evening?
1: David, I'm well, thank you. I uh, mentioned in an earlier episode a dream reference to some town in California that I viewed on a, you know, you, you are now entering some little town on the coast of California. Completely imaginary, of course, but it was called Sunken City, and i've done a musical piece that i'm really really excited about that i've named sunken city so
0: ooh nice yeah. nice well i've had a interesting dream world that i will relate to you in the dream section of this episode but excellent excellent there might be uh there might be a bit more back and forth i'm not actually i do know what got me back into the dream world but uh they've been vivid and they've been intense and I think you'll enjoy them. So
1: I'm really glad that you've got some extra material because that will kind of complement my kind of quietude on that front. Uh, I do have something poignant, but I, I think that it will really benefit from your harmonic coming in. And I think that that's not a coincidence. Uh, that's another example of kind of this strange psychomagnetic rapport that we have of kind of balancing each other out. That's. Mm-hmm. For-
0: that's really cool. Absolutely. All right. So um, not much to report on the teaching end. Just uh got Maybe kids that's working good. on research good? papers. I I, you know, I had my evaluation today. And oh. I didn't I didn't even know the principal was in there until halfway through the class. She was in the back and I was focused on all the kids. And I finally saw her and I said, When did you? sneak in that's all so, that's
1: good good you're too yeah. focused on what you're doing yeah, yeah. yeah. how many classes
0: um, do you have again
1: six that's what i thought yeah that's mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm.
0: um what is your band and aphorism for us today okay
1: okay well the band may seem to be down a line i've been mining in the past but i'm 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 refining it, it. If you take that view, I think it is different. But the band is called Hypno Liquid Motion, and they could be described as a deep Freudian quaalude and cocktails hookah lounge music group with a heavy dose of Melvin Powers hypnosis and Fillmore West, 1960s light show influence. Do you know Melvin Powers? He was the serious hypnosis guy. And he really did a lot to give us the weird spiraling wheels and stuff. And he's an interesting figure. There are a couple of very significant psychological figures that uh, really wrote in you uh, know pretty high level academic professional terms about hypnosis. Melvin Powers was the, the supermarket checkout stand sort of version of that. Very worth my, my time thinking about that for the Memory and Alertness book. But in any case, hypno-liquid motion claim to be psychotherapists as much as musicians, but their compositions contain radical sonic and lyric contradictions. Informational noise distortions, which have an effect like unto an alternative kind of electric current that exerts subtle but decisive effects on the brain, but certainly the thoughts and moods of listeners. Their album is called Try to Relax. An admonition we often hear and maybe even give ourselves, which is absolutely guaranteed to fail and create more psychic unrest. But some of their individual song titles are Invisible Clocks, Kayak Radar, which the astute will recognize as Two Palindromes, and finally, Sex Toy as Sundial. So they're kind of a sophisticated version of some band ideas that I've had in the past. I can hear their music and I can hear the effect of it. And I suppose uh, I'm kind of playing with some of the things I'm hoping to do in my own music in a way. But I'm trying to be a little bit more benign. Yeah,
0: Yeah. you are trying to be more benign?
1: A little bit. Well, these guys are a little bit, you know, they're out to, you know, mess heads.
0: Well, I, yeah, maybe not. I, don't I, like, know. I like that your version of benign is that you have to invent <laughs> psychos to not.
1: <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, point taken, point taken. I'm with you, I, I, I just, you know, this is why, you know, your friendship is so important. You just mm-hmm. gave me back a reflection that maybe I needed to see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well see uh, any you know we're quite capable of having some fairly major you know elephants in every room you know
0: mm-hmm. what is your aphorism for
1: today okay okay every straight man wants a harem every straight woman wants to be cleopatra semicolon a quality of pedantry pomposity or prudishness pervades every performance of denial (laughs) i had a great deal of fun writing and thinking about that and I think it's obviously sort of, you know, has an element of of contentiousness to it, but it did make me think of an underlying principle that may not be, uh, well, that transcends the subject matter, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Uh, Because I really genuinely, I first of all think that there would be a lot of denial of this. Right. And I, I, do do you agree?
0: I do, but I think that they'd all be lying.
1: Yes. Okay. Yes. It's yes. Okay. Would you also agree that the level of denial would skew female? In
0: 2023? Yeah. Maybe not. Maybe not. I could see it go going either way. To be honest with you, I can see. I could see, okay. I could I, see I a lot of. I, I could. I could see male denial in this because you know they would shrug it off with a joke like, "Oh, who'd I can barely deal with my wife. Who'd want to hear?" Yes. Me? Okay. I um, take that point. That's good. I, I. But I see what you mean as well. Yes. Whereas, uh, uh, with women, typically they are the ones who definitely want to kind of hide that. uh, That lust for power, particularly sexual power, right? I mean, unless they're being, unless that's their whole online shtick, most women are like, no, I wouldn't want to be Cleopatra. No, no, that's something. But I mean, of course you do. Of course you do. I'm a happily married man, and I have no problem with the statement that I just heard because, of course, of course, if it was a thing where everybody was cool with it, who wouldn't want to do that?
1: I'm I'm pleased to hear you say that because I think that that was very much my my thought. But but here's the thing I think that is uh, it's not quite ready for the tool segment of our show. I'm going to have to refine it and think more about it. But it it did uh, the statement itself brought brought forward a bigger principle. I think is that. Whenever, I really do believe that if you, in unless you just completely dismiss that comment and go, oh, whatever, or, you know, sure. If you engage with it at all and you resist it, in my experience, the tonal quality of the resistance does sound pedantic, a mm-hmm. little bit pompous or mm-hmm. prudish. Certainly, mm-hmm. there's a risk of kind of Obama professorial sort of, you know. Stiffness. And so my the bigger principle, I I think I'm glimpsing here and, and floating for further discussion and refinement is that whenever you express a negation or resistance to something and you can't avoid those tones, which I think most people would, even if they're really that's their mode, they don't want to be seen or heard to be like that. They don't want to be that doctrinaire that um that sort of smug and self assured or that explanatory, so I think that when intelligent educated you know sensitive people find themselves slipping into those tonal modes that that is an indicator of some conflict within them that they're at least temporarily in oh indicted. yeah.
0: Yeah, I like the broader picture there that you can take the pomposity or the pedantry uh and blow that up and say this is a defense mechanism no matter what you apply it to. Um also a stray thought I had, we talked a few episodes back about the particularly male sadness of seeing a nice ass in public mm-hmm. and how you don't necessarily want to have sex with it, you just it's just sad because you'll never fully experience it not even sexually just but i think that actually does tie into your assertion that all men want harems <laughs> right yeah it's, 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 you know,
1: there, there is a connection there's a rep you know mm-hmm. there's a resonance uh to that and i i think again that kind of male melancholy that we touched on is something that really is an important part of the masculine experience i've had that reinforced at very you know different points in my life from different you know points of view and I'm I'm glad that that resonates with you. And you know, I think it's something important for uh, for today and for now. Mm-hmm. And I sure, mm-hmm. I know that some of our listeners will certainly connect with that. You know,
0: I think I think that the pomposity of today too could be read as snark. When you read snark on the internet, that's an immediate defense yes. mechanism. And it to me, and I think a lot of other thinking people that's having less and less currency as a legitimate form of engaging with other human beings. Uh, There's been a lot of rejection of snark lately because I think that it is, it's snark implies a kind of pomposity, right? That you've done the reading and that you are just, you are so far past the person you're talking to that I'm not even going to engage. I'm just going to be an asshole. And, you know, but I think that comes off as a real insecurity with the way that you think about things, right? Because you and I can talk to anybody and disagree with anybody about anything. Our faces might get red, but can still disagree. But I don't. I couldn't see myself ever stooping to the level of, oh, you really believe that? Wow. Yeah,
1: mm. no, I, I agree, I agree. That just doesn't seem, <laughs> I, I can't imagine that ever being in your nature. It's certainly not in mine. I think it just, there's kind of a a short circuit, fortunately, that's in there that that sees that as just, uh, well, I don't even think it's a possibility. I don't think it's an option that has to be short-circuited. I just think it's just not there, you know? Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that thing that some people might have is what makes them, uh, to use the popular parlance, beta. That's... (laughs) That's where being beta comes from.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That was one. I love the way you said that. Oh, dear. Okay. Are you ready for an imaginative challenge that will push the envelope?
0: Yep. Push it.
1: Okay. Once again, listeners, David has not had any preparation for this. He will be hearing this as you are for the first, first time. The working title is Mother House. Okay, this is a standalone story that you can imagine in any medium from novel to movie, your choice. But you're going back in time. The setting is immediately after World War II at a small private college in the Midwest where the sexes are segregated and female students live in dormitories overseen by a house mother. It's a hot Indian summer in the breathless town, and the young erotic energy is palpable, sparks, tension. Many young men just returned from the war, fresh young women away from home for the first time. You are a house mother, and you are actually a biological female, but you have some vague private suspicions that one of your fellow house mothers is not female. You secretly think she is a he presenting as a woman, Maybe just to have the job, which, of course, includes room and board. But maybe there's a more nefarious reason. There's a lot of young, energetic female flesh around. You're just not sure about your colleague, and this uncertainty concerns you all by itself because you feel obligated to keep it to yourself. Then some creepy things start happening in the girls' dorms. You get to decide what kind. Are your suspicions about the real gender of your fellow house mother correct? If they are, does that necessarily mean he's responsible for the strange things that have started happening? What happens? Okay.
0: Good. Yeah. No, I like it. I like it. I um, you see, I really do think that prompts like this and pitches like this. I do think that this we're gonna see a wave in about five years of stuff like this, stuff that you would only see in you know, pre two thousand and twelve media is gonna come back, and there's gonna be some interesting stuff going on. So, yeah, no, I love it. I will work on that. You sent me a text about today, and I have questions. Okay. <clears throat> Hope all's well. Here are the notes for our show. Your imaginative challenge is the best yet. I agree. It's very good. Further clarification of what the swamp aka the strange category slash set of all the things you don't know, means to us. An important distinction is that while unquestionably influenced by cultures and capital C culture, what we call the ghost radio signal, the swamp, in our frame, is fundamentally a personal, private, individually curated game reserve gone wild an inversion of memory palace blown up into wreckage mist unstable and even more peculiar peculiar unformed forms the individual must adopt some responsibility of stewardship regarding this terrain of mind which is the pra- which is the predicate of the spatializing capability on any level all right so before we go on to the second paragraph i really do I love the word stewardship. I think that is very, very important. A memory palace is curated. It is decorated. Uh, It has hallways and rooms and beds and blankets and couches and fireplaces. But the swamp is stewarded, meaning that you don't have ultimate control over what happens to it. You're just there to steward. So that's very important. Secondly... The key question is, does this intimate secret terrain change shape and substance over the course of someone's life? How early does it begin to form as the elemental substrate for all formation and formulation? Lisa, who's been mentioned on the show, uh, her own children are in their late 20s and she teaches third grade, recently has had contact with kids Gus's age. She was astonished anew in what she described as their, quote, intellectual curiosity, unquote. This is age-old insight, and yet we often override this aspect of childhood with concerns for socialization and behavioral decorum. We're now throwing sex and gender into the mix earlier and earlier, not to mention consumerism. Is learning to share so much more important than unlearning how to daydream? Where does this schism slash conflict come from, and whose interests does it serve the rule of noise is that someone hears sense in it. And then we will get into the allegory of the theremin, but I want to talk about this sentence. Um, If you could uh, talk more about this is learning to share so much more important than unlearning how to daydream. What is, what do you mean by that?
1: Okay. Well, I I am heavily influenced by my friend Lisa's insights into Uh, I lost two kids, two and three. And of course she had a really deep mothering parenthood experience. She's a woman who really wanted to have kids. She's been a professional teacher her whole life. So she's been around a lot of kids. So I think it's interesting that she was so struck by this. And what she was looking at was truly the paradigm of mind taking shape and form in these little bodies, these little beings. In a very radical, open, expansive sort of Terence McKenna way, and of course that process stops. As we know, it it really gets arrested. Some people would say it gets completely uh, tromped on, um, and that may or may not be fair. And obviously, different people's experiences are um, hugely, hugely different, but. I think what the idea is here of it's that individual, private psychic sense of a mind forming by moving out into the world with questioning curiosity and that drive supersedes a lot of that sort of down and dirty sharing uh, fight for power, prestige, attention, that kind of level that that aspect of of how we see humanity, which is obviously very important, and there's no question that those years those really early years are crucial times for learning that that behavior behavioral patterns what's accepted and what's not, what will keep you from getting spanked or belted over the head by a brother or sister. What's going to keep you from getting hurt? All, you know, there's a lot of stuff involved in that. But what I took her comment to be was that we also are, are need to get back to an appreciation of the formation of mind, deep grammars and semantics of making sense and decoding the universe and seeing our perception as part of a coding and seeing our, our Venn diagram of who our little, you know, being is intersecting with the world in, in a very, you know, fluid, fungible sort of way that is just, you know, always changing shape. And we've kind of, we, we really as a society don't talk about that too much. We really talk about it on a, on a very pragmatic level. That. Again, I'm not saying isn't important, but I think it also flies in the face of obvious, profound, psychological, magical integration with the universe, that other cultures have no problem balancing both those things together, seeing them relating much more than we do, and certainly having the deeper appreciation for the magical, psychic, spiritual creature taking shape and form does that help
0: it does help it does help i am gonna pause right here i have to go find my charger i think it's in my car sorry about that but my my computer i don't want it to die so i'll be right back okay i understand
1: A little intermission music, which ties into a later topic. If you listen very closely, you can still hear it drifting, rippling out. But to pick up on a point that has been rolled out tonight. Uh, The the swamp, as in all the things you don't know, that category, the important thing we're trying to sort of get across in this episode is that, that is uh, a construct of the individual mind. It may be influenced by larger cultural forces, of course, and certainly more localized social, family, community forces, but ultimately the individual is in charge of that even though we may really have very few handles on that construct. We may feel completely lost. We may not have never thought of it at all. It may be too vague and abstract an idea for many people to come to terms with on any level. But nonetheless, it is something that we have a say in and that while we don't have final control and we're suggesting that the the, the, the role to play is, is one of stewardship, we are nonetheless uh, sort of the Tom Bombadil figures if if that is at all appropriate in in the wasteland badlands of of what we don't know Hello hello I'm welcome back, back. Yeah. I played some strange inter you know intermission music no,
0: very cool very cool. Um, let's see here. Can you hear me? I can. Okay, cool. Cool. All right. So I'm back. Sorry about that, everybody. I had to go get my charger. It was in my car and I realized that I did not have enough battery to finish out this episode. So we are back now in terms of the allegory of the theremin. I'm pretty sure I know where you're going with this. But the last mini paragraph says, this makes a nice transition to a new analogy I want to introduce. I'd actually made a remark in passing about it in the show a while back, but I've refined and developed it, the allegory of the theremin. So what is the allegory of the theremin?
1: Okay, just so people, I think most people would be familiar with the concept of of the theremin. It is an electronic music device that's not haptic, uh, it, it's played without touching it. Uh, effectively, the physical motion of hands, the, 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 the airwaves can uh, affect an antenna and set up different kinds of vibrations. And Moog, M-O-O-G, the original Moog synthesizer people are probably the most famous for their uh, range of theremins. It's a weird sort of science fiction type of sound, although it's become more sophisticated, so you can get more variations. But somewhere back in the mix, and I, I have I have a, a few different instruments in that category, and I've uh, attempted to self invent uh, a few others, um, modifying some bits and pieces of existing equipment, kind of cannibalizing it into my own monster. Um, but at some points, many episodes back, I I had my uh, ceremony set up in my office, and I'd left it on and I'd forgotten about it. And I, I wasn't near enough to be really attempting any kind of intentional sound or music, if you want to be kind. Uh it was just on. And I I I started to become aware when I was, you know, in another room or in a movie that there was a strange kind of ambient sort of. Sound and I'd forgotten, of course, that I'd left left it on. And then again, I don't know if we forget anything like that. I think I was aware of it, but I was I was kind of surprised what shape the waveforms took, how the sound manifested itself, and I was so interested. I realized it would be very difficult to have arrived at that kind of sound. Creation, sound generation uh, intentionally so I think there's something interesting about that and I think this harkens back to the entire notion of randomness, chance the influence of some sort of hidden hand of the gods in, in art and our thinking so that's certainly there as a concept but I also thought since I mentioned that on the show now, many episodes ago, uh, I've looked into this more consciously. And I think it's a beautiful analogy of the impact and influence that our sheer physical presence and movement has in the world. I've been thinking a lot in uh, the writing of my memory and alertness book about the Venn diagrams of these major categories that we draw. And the most fundamental one, of course, is us and the universe. Mm -hmm. And just the phrasing of that alone, I think is adversarial and potentially deeply paranoid. It's part of this larger hauntedness that you and I have been talking about in certainly Western civilization, but perhaps in all humanity that might link into uh, the origins of language. We said that you know the origins of language do have a paranoid streak to them, uh, and you look at that in, in every aspect. If you mean we're always very suspicious. The whole notion of science: the world is not what it appears to be. You know, the counterintuitive. That alone is a very peculiar <laughs> state of mind to be in. It's a peculiar sort of psychological stance. You know, it's very different than any other animal. A lot of other animals have fear and anxiety, and we're sure we see that. But I don't know if they're sort of constantly second-guessing their perceptions and their involvement with the world. I just, I find that, I, I wonder where the evidence of that is. And I think that one of the issues is that there is a tendency to really view our particularly over the last 25 years, and I think we're at an acute stage now with the whole notion of identity politics and identity as kind of a, a ferocious value, as, as, as vague and ill-defined as that might be, because so often it's the individual seeking collective identity. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it couldn't be more in conflict with the notion of individual uh, but I think where it starts is people really do have a Venn diagram, categorical understanding of themselves at best and the universe. Whereas we've said on, on, in different ways that you know, that we are part of the universe. We are made of the universe. The Dylan Thomas quote that I've mentioned before, which I really love of his, the fruit of man unwrinkles in the stars. Uh That actually means something different. I would kind of invert that and say that we are sort of the fruit of the stars. And if we could adapt more that point of view, we would feel more at the heart of the universe than at the edge of the universe. But as we've talked about in previous episodes, we would negotiate that quantum oscillation with much more finesse and gratitude and just sheer outrageous communal wonder, you know, that, that is the possibility for all of the human species. We could be in a state of shared miraculous joy in being simultaneously at the heart of the universe and at its edge, but that is far from the case on any level. And we don't have any pretensions to any kind of darker state of mind that is on that level we're really on a much you know sadly much more down and dirty you know it really it really is and maybe that's that's appropriate from time to time but when i left the all, i started to realize what my just my very presence might mean it just made me a little bit more aware of it and in contrast, the buildings I teach in at this big, you know, public buildings, big state university, I always feel like I'm at odds with the, you know, the fuzz and the hiss of the fluorescent tubes or the ventilator. You know, it, it always sounds sort of uh, digestive and, and peristaltic and sort of in, in some sort of beast machine and the the noises are always kind of unwanted and, and, and in conflict and of course where i live at home it's immensely quiet and and really everything means something so when i hear a kind of strange ambient atmospheric echo reflection of my own embodiment on that simple a level, I'm not doing anything to make a sound, I'm not actively playing the theremin. I'm just aware that the room, the house is responding to me in a way that I'm also, of course, responding to the environment. My point is, I think we always think of ourselves as in the environment. We've talked about the problems of container uh, metaphors. And we do not see ourselves often enough as lost explorers having an influence and not just inhabiting environments but cohabiting you know and and really being part of the atmosphere and i think that however people can get access to that perspective uh I'm not suggesting they they go get a theremin and leave it on in the corner of a room, but metaphorically, I am, and I think we need a greater sense of awareness of our impact and to look at that as neutrally as possible to sort of get our heads around what that means. It's neither good nor bad, but it's there it's 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 vitally present, and we our perception of the room, the environment is incomplete and fundamentally truncated in some way, if we don't factor ourselves into it. And I think this links back to my earlier re- attempt to rejig you know, the Heraclitus observation that you can never step in the same river twice. And what we talked about in looking at that in a different way is we always think of the river ever changing because it's flowing, because that's what by definition what a river is we don't think of ourselves first as the one that's changing mm-hmm. but our perspective mm-hmm. of course is changing once we once we you know get our attention called to that we go of course yeah right absolutely but we're we're distracted at first by the river and i think that we're often very distracted by rooms and architectural structures and conceptual structures and we forget our presence within them
0: So I have a question that I think will lead uh, into what you just said, because I think that's a really important point. But when you are conceiving of your memory palace and you're conceiving of the swamp, what does your movement between the two look like?
1: Well, that is a very, very uh, astute question. And what it's starting to look like is that whole life journey oscillation between those two points is really the essence of what I think what we mean by memory. And it's the same as alertness and attention. And it is uh, related also to to the dreaming state. So I think that, that consciousness for me really only becomes a viable, meaningful notion when I see it as some sort of traverse or oscillation between memory palace which is a very structured noun-based attempt on the part of my mind my consciousness my character but also what has been enculturated within me and what I've learned in my life and what I've heard other people do and what language kind of encourages me to follow along because there are all these hidden protocols within it deep grammars that affect my perception at a pretty immediate level. And it's very difficult to transcend that or short circuit it. Uh, that has value in the sense that it has cultural currency and it is, it it helps me to relate to other people's memory palaces, Hmm. Mm -hmm. their structured Mm -hmm. sense of consciousness, how they manage knowledge. What we're talking about is that's, that's a crucial distinction that needs to be made. We were talking about the management of a certain kind of knowledge, basic assumptions about the world, uh, decisions about the nature of physics that we accept or we understand, or what we've kind of agreed with ourselves that we don't need to understand—all uh, of that kind of, of decision making. It's not—I'm not talking about knowledge or awareness in the sense of, "Well, is a partner cheating on you?" or "What does tomorrow hold? Will you stub your toe or get into a major car accident?" No, I'm not talking about. I'm talking about the knowledge that we travel with as basic necessities of mind to make sense of the world the transition between private psychology social order and demand and whatever we in you know infer to be a larger cosmological plane that extends well beyond the social so does that help on that front
0: it does yeah yeah so the 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 lobby of the Memory Palace might have some some trees coming into it. I really like what you said, though, about somehow the, the oscillation between the two and the fact that there might be some vines creeping into the Memory Palace and there might be some construction going on in the swamp um, allows you to, if not inhabit, then at least uh, understand other people's points of view and where they're coming from. Right, So the the status of your own structure and your effect that you have on that structure, because you have an effect on both the swamp and the palace itself, uh, sort of echoes out so that when you have interactions with other people, it's almost as though the combined force of that oscillation is reaching out to that person and is adding into the memory palace and the swamp right it's a it's a almost like a <clears throat> it's beginning to look kind of like the the symbol for the olympics right all those intertwined rings yeah it's not a simple yeah. venn diagram it's rings upon it's like a, a almost like a beehive like a honeycomb of these rings that are that are moving outward
1: I think that's very well said. And uh you maybe think that a way to to add maybe further uh depth to this, further clarity, hopefully, would be that if you say you're in a dating situation and you meet someone where the chemistry is kind of, you know, good and, and you're starting to, you know, there's an instant sort of rapport and not the first, you know, meeting when those real magnetic moments are happening and that energy is just kind of aligning but say sort of as the second or third meeting goes forward i think what ends up happening and what you're doing at some level beyond you know say an erotic attraction is you're sharing memory palace structures you're Mm -hmm. seeing if there's any sort of congruence Mm -hmm. there but the general idea is you're pretty assured of that there is some sort of structure like a memory palace in place. And you're kind of conducting, you know, tours for the other person. And Mm -hmm. then you're you're trying to be polite and go on a tour of theirs, but you're, you're working that through, but it's very intentional. And it, it has success and failures because of that. Whereas the swamps of all the things that you don't know on, you know, for each party, those aren't capable of being explained or presented intentionally. they have to be inferred obliquely if at all right. and yeah. it it may not really i mean this is i think a kind of a new concept for it's new for me to think of it as a clear category when it's so unclear conceptually, but this is the kind of thing that takes that takes time, and you may yeah. not ever discover. Uh, whole bits of it you may hopefully and this is the goal of of the kind of community we're trying to uh, nurture with Lost Explorers is that we're able to articulate more fully some of these deeply mysterious murky Mm -hmm. confusing things and to actually get some ideas from to share ideas from each other that help make our individual swamps uh look more welcoming you know right
0: right right and i would also say that if you have this uh dualism of the palace and the swamp and the palace is letting a bit of the swamp in on occasion and the swamp is open to stewardship construction they both they have their their fingers in in each other so to speak that permeability of the palace extends to people who you meet and their own palaces, right? So that permeability is a great social skill to have, right? Because you are allowing a kind of meat melding of two different palaces, but also your ability to construct in your own swamp, Suggests that you can construct in their swamp as well right so it's actually a great social ability to have that permeability between those two things and you'll see this in people who have a very clear defining line they have a gated community (laughs) with gun turrets out right the palace is the palace swamp is the swamp and never the two shall meet um their memory palace is not porous, right? And their swamp is neglected and unstewarded. And that is how they approach other people as well. They don't have the ability to either meld palaces or co-experience swamps. Does that make sense?
1: I think that's exactly what is happening today. I think that if you wanted to look at the social malaise of our time from a very overarching and uh, non-melodramatic point of view, so your steering is clear of terms like psychopathology and uh, epidemic madness or... uh, darkness unleashed and we're just looking at things a little bit more let's just chill out here i think that that what you've outlined is exactly the problem because it affects some of our our brightest and best and certainly best intentioned people. But they live in very rigid, orthodox frameworks that don't allow for the flexibility and fluency and agility that's necessary. And that would really open up so many channels of deeper enjoyment and contentment. And it makes me think going back to very early in the piece, one of our first episodes, but a theme that keeps repeating as it should, uh, was uh, and I mentioned it in the in my uh, textbook uh, on creative writing and the imagination, uh, an idea that I learned from the Solomon Islanders. no fortress, no siege.
0: Mm-hmm. you know
1: they're they're not only a military strategy, but a worldview, a philosophy of life. Uh, don't embed yourself keep on the move. There there are strategies that were so successful during World War II were constantly based on camouflage and ambush, create the illusion of many more people than there were, create the illusion of targets and people where they weren't there at all, uh, confuse the hell out of the Japanese. I mean, it was just amazing. And it's a lovely idea in terms of, I think, an artistic frame of mind of don't, you know, and, and I think we're all struggling with it because we, you know, we love the library. We love the cathedral of knowledge. We love the Alexandrian library as, and research center as an idea, but you have to stay out on, you know, the bow of the Pequod looking out for whales. You got to stay on the move. And that's a difficult thing um, to do. But I think the key word, which, uh, we should really incorporate it to all. We, we mention it often, but I think you really put it in the right place this time is permeability because permeable membranes are so essential to what's going on. And I like the organic, the really squishy quality of mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. It speaks to embodiment. It speaks to the real nature of existence is not airy, misty, uh, conceptual it it's it's chemical it's hormonal it's uh vibrational uh membrane patterns you know shifting and changing shape and taking on new influences and 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 fluids you know fluid exchange energy exchange
0: mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: i I do think that your natural inclinations uh always have led you in this direction, but I think that The clarity of of putting the the real frame on the notion of permeability, I think that's influenced by your experience as a teacher now. I think in a subtle way, you're seeing that there sure there's the curriculum, there's the students, there's the class, there's all this infrastructure, but underlying it is really a flow of energy that depends upon permeability. and the gated community framework is what we're is what education you know fights against
0: Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i do see that in education i think that what separates a good teacher from a bad teacher is that porousness that permeability Mm. the ability to engage brian allen Carr gave me the advice of always think for a few seconds before you respond and what i think that piece of advice is doing is actually allowing yourself to be permeable to what's being said to you because your initial reaction to things if you don't give it time if you don't give those membranes time to to mash up you might speak in a way that is not conducive to a good classroom environment so you just have to be patient you have to let it happen
1: i agree that I agree with that. I, I also agree, as we said, in, in kind of trusting the third man. Yep. And I, I man. do step okay. out and let whatever that consciousness is that seems to be, you know, using my voice. It's such body. a
0: cool, it's, a, it's such a cool shamanistic exercise, teaching yeah. is. People don't know this, who haven't done it. But when you're really firing on all cylinders and you are you're hitting all your points, you're not you. I don't know how else to explain it. Like I, It's not even the you and I who are talking right now. You're a teacher. You're in front of an audience and you are, man, it's it's kind of a, a thrill in and of itself. If you wonder why people do it for for little pay and put up with all the nonsense from administration and the cell phones and blah, 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 it's because it's a cool feeling to really be in the pocket like I was today and just be you know, vibing off of that, that energy.
1: I'm excited for you because I know what that feels like. And I know how valuable that is to students. And I think you're playing a particularly valuable role given the age of your students, juniors in high school. Uh, I felt like that of late like, And it, it's funny when, because you, Students get the vibe of the language, the intellect, the ideas, the energy, the sharing. And they, they know when they're doing good work, when they share aloud. But sometimes something very physical really makes a point. And one of my segments every day, which is just silly nonsense, but it's, again, an anchor point for the structure of the class. Because, of course, it's always followed up immediately by something, you know, kind of heavy and intense and interesting and big. But I do a riddle of the day, and I always, you know, insult them about sort of, you know, hands-on buzzers. I don't want to. This is so easy. I don't want to have to wait two seconds, you know. And they're they're mm-hmm. starting to get really. I said, you guys are so old. You know, this is just pathetic. And so they're getting, you know, more and more wound up. And uh so, I, but I did it faster this time. And, and there's this guy who's just. He's actually, every time he gets up or I see him walk into the classroom, in other words, when he's not just seated there, I'm again shocked at how just large his stature is. He's not overweight. He's just a big guy. Mm -hmm. And that's completely at odds with his personality and character. But he had his hands on the buzzer, and it was like a real rapid exchange. And I had a little packet of uh, Sour Patch kid, you know, candy. And I went, boom, and I backhanded it at like absolute peak speed. And he went and caught it. And it was just like this beautiful. I mean, we could have rehearsed that for hours <laughs> and not gotten that right. And there's this yeah. one chick in the class, and her mouth just drops. And she goes, I can't believe I saw that. You know? And yeah. So yeah. it's it's funny what what works in these things but it's all I think what we're saying is that there is a deeper dynamic and a question of permeability of energy and momentum that is completely transcendent of subject matter and is also completely underlying it and making subject matter and other levels of of conversation and interaction possible you know I
0: think so yeah i think that um I think that's a good place to stop here because I got, I got a lot of dream stuff I want to talk about. Okay.
1: Yeah. Look, I'm looking forward to that because I'm, I, I will, well, I'm a little bit, uh, I have a, I have a kind of another sort of uh, take on, on my dream life of light. So you're, you're going to, uh, I think really come to the fore here. I I think that's good. Cool. Uh,
0: My house mother imaginative challenge.
1: I'm so ready.
0: I'm so ready. <laughs> it got. It gets. It gets pretty deep into exploitation territory. But um, here we go. So the house mother of that I'm suspicious of uh, speaks with a, a slightly European accent, maybe German. Oh. I'm not quite sure, but I am highly suspicious of those because my husband was killed in Normandy. So I have this chip on my shoulder and I'm looking for infiltrators. And though she speaks English pretty well, I'm not sure about her, right? And that uh, metaphor of the accent and the slightly off gender bending is going to be important, right? Because that's the metaphor that we're working with here, right? We're looking for Nazis and we're looking for any sign that they might be a Nazi. It starts off, of course, with missing underwear. Girls can't find underwear. That is hilarious. Yes, a panty raid. A panty raid, peeping in windows. Um, It moves on to the girls, particularly the virgins in the house, being very turned on around this house mother beginning to act very flirtatious. Um, they sort of can't can't help themselves whenever this particular house mother is around there's something just very powerful about her. So we come to find out that she is very adept at soccer. She's a great soccer player, which seems weird. It doesn't seem like a female should be that good at soccer. And she's also very strict and has a very particular, almost ritualistic, way that she wants the girls to take their showers she's very Ooh. concerned about the showers now all of this weirdness begins to accelerate and it eventually uh eventually some sexual assaults take place on campus the men are becoming much more sexually aggressive towards the women and it all culminates in a dance Uh, a themed dance in which the women are all dressed as German beer maids and the men are dressed as American GIs. Oh, wow! (laughs) So at this point, my character is convinced that this house mother has some kind of, you know, nefarious power over these people. And so I begin to do a little bit of snooping myself. I begin to uncover bits of her past And we do find out that this house mother was a man, but she doesn't have a penis anymore because she was involved in some top secret Nazi uh, experiments to look into the power of circumcision in terms of really getting that lingam energy. And so she's had her, her penis cut off, but she keeps it with her as a fetish. And it's not her, but it's the disembodied penis that is causing this mayhem. Now, for the climax, it could be a confrontation between this German, I guess we'll call her a woman, and our hero. Or it could be them teaming up against the sentient, uh, sexually provocative penis that has gotten a mind of its own and has taken over this house. The end.
1: Oh man, I don't know where to begin. That was <laughs> wild. You know, I that really blew up very quickly for me because you really brought in the the very topical anxiety about the war you know and and infiltration and i Mm -hmm. think that would really you know if we ran this plot synopsis premise by you know some people today they Mm -hmm. would get all focused on the the gender transgender issues you know totally Mm -hmm. distracted by that and you instantly whip it around back to something that is very very much more appropriate to the time frame the setting and mm-hmm. and something that people really would be thinking of all the time at that moment, um, and I, I I love the notion of the amputated penis. That's of course a great mythological theme. It's mm-hmm. the basis of my novel Zanesville. It was the takeoff point. You did a nice. Uh, it's a great motif. You you you, mm-hmm. you when you've drawn upon that, you do some good mythological things with it. And I like that. I could really see that that kind of just blowing people's minds. Did you imagine that as uh prose writing a novel or or film?
0: Film. Yeah. I, I picture this as film. Yeah. I'm not sure how well this kind of thing. I feel like a, a tight 80-minute exploitation movie with like a yeah. lot, a lot of tits and ass and a lot of like uh very inappropriate feeling eroticism would be really important, you know, because you'd want everybody to be very young and uh, impressionable and innocent. And it would be a lot of, you know, like all that innocence being stripped away essentially by this, well, maybe not the house mother, maybe her penis fetish that she carries around. But the explicit exploitative sexuality, like kind of Ilsa of the SS kind of stuff, uh, She-Wolf of the SS, you know the one I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. The, the, um, that element would be very, very important to it. It wouldn't work if it's not gross. It'd have to be gross. So yeah, that's how I see oh, it.
1: I think there's a beautiful contrast there. That the sort of the the innocence and yet deep rigidity of the small town, perhaps in Ohio. I was thinking kind mm-hmm. of my mother's uh, college town of Oberlin, Ohio, and then the innocence of these American kids contrasted with this dark sort of S and M quality we associate mm-hmm. with Nazis. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of union forces loose in a small town. In a still hot, not quite summer anymore, but early autumn transition time. Mm-hmm. Lots of lots of good mythos there. I think that was very interesting.
0: Cool, cool. I'm glad you liked it. Do you have a tool and a tip for us today?
1: I do, I do. And I uh the tool starts like this. It starts with a, a realization. So it's it's a language driven thing at the start, but I think it really means something in a broader way. Sometimes you have to say, I just don't want to do this now. I'm going to hide, duck out, take shelter in something I really do want to do. Hiding and seeking is something we need to bring back to the forefront of our lives. I'm not talking about mere acceptance or even enjoyment, perverse or innocent. We need to explicitly commit to hide and seek occult practice and evolving mastery as a maze map path to wisdom, which I define as sigil congruence with the universe. And to make sense of that, I'll introduce the tip because they kind of relate. The tool is always kind of that higher, larger, thematic idea, whereas the tip is Mm -hmm. on the motif level, very practical. But I'll get these working in oscillation so you can help me unpack them. My tip is let yourself get hungry. And I don't mean hungry for work. I don't mean hungry in a metaphorical sense. I mean, literally hungry. Let Mm -hmm. yourself get hungry. Don't mm. don't panic about that. Don't don't, you know, hangry is now a word that it kind of annoys me. I there are lots of TikTok videos about often women, sort of young women, displaying hangriness. And I I just don't know why that's thought to be funny or or enjoyable in any way. But and people say, well, don't go shopping if you're hungry, because you'll buy one. <laughs> you know well i think you'll buy what you can afford you know yeah. i think that's what you walk out of the store with uh you may not make good decisions but i find when i'm working creatively that there does i do get to a point of course where i just think i've i've got to eat i just got to eat i've got to take a break and somehow the schedule you know works around that but i often find that i'm i'm just better being you know, a bit uncomfortable. I think if you compare, you can live with that. You can really work with being hungry in a way that I think you can't work with being completely exhausted. Or if you just have to go to the toilet, you know, you can't <laughs> ignore those things mm-hmm. or it's, it's ill-advised, you know, you, you end up not, a, you, you don't ignore them. Um, But I think you can ignore hunger. I think in a way you can really turn that in a a good direction. And that also made me think about there is a dead juniper plant outside my window here. And I really need to get rid of it because it's unsightly. It bothers me, it makes me feel bad, but I'm sure it upsets my neighbor. But to do so is hard work. I mean, it really is. A, it's a brutal thing. It's not very high, but it will require some serious labor digging it out. And I thought of Gary Snyder, uh, the poet who said, you know, the, the thing that Americans fear the most is physical work. And so that's kind of related to this let yourself get hungry. That was my way of packaging the fact that you need to embrace Hard work, sometimes something you don't want to do, so you see I've got the in the tool category, I've got an acceptance of no, i I don't want to do something i'm I'm either going to not do it altogether or I'm going to procrastinate in some sort of really creative, fun, interesting way because I'm hiding from that and I'm seeking something bigger and more important. and I have found consistently when I have just given into that of late over the last year that is when the best uh say music that i'm making comes about and i'm not saying it's it that makes it good music i'm saying it's it's the best of my work and it's the most fun and i find that i really i find what i was really seeking and i think there is that balance issue and then down to the tip level of letting yourself get hungry letting yourself Face some hard work, you know. That's the other balance of it, and so i, I it's kind of a fun. When I, I think my the tool being the bigger idea is a little bit more freedom oriented and acceptance, and and naughty, and and being more kid like on the loose, and then the tip is more the adult side of like, well, you know. But it's it it's balancing the the flow of energy, the permeability of being.
0: So, first of all, I do not understand people who get hangry or even really hungry. I might be a freak with this. People who've been around me in the past have said, are you not hungry? I don't get hungry the way other people do.
1: Interesting. I mean,
0: fasting has never been a problem for me. I could stop eating today and come back to you in three days and... I would probably be fine. I've been fine in the past, I should say. Um, And I've always looked at people who get hungry, particularly people who get angry and hungry, AKA angry as being um, weak, which isn't fair. It's not fair. I mean, everybody does it. Um, But I do, I can't help, but feel it. I, there's a particular thing in my mind of a, you know, a, a friend, someone, you know, Um, who was really hungry and we were having fun at night. And We ordered food and she got the food, but it had like the wrong ingredient on it. And she just lost her mind because the food wasn't right. So she was getting very hangry about her burrito. I couldn't make sense of it. I have no idea what that's like. There are physical feelings of being hungry that are unpleasant. But uh, for me, they are easily ignored. I could just not do that and continue about my day and be fine. So I do like the idea of letting yourself become hungry. And it makes me wonder if my uh, ideas about hunger might be a little skewed by some strange physical gift or curse that I've been given. I don't know what that is. Um, now when it comes to the, the practicalness of the tool of allowing yourself to procrastinate in order to, um, you know, kind of create your best work, I think that the tool can only happen if the tip happens first. I think they're really complimentary because I think think that if you- you know, if I, I think if you, if you procrastinate, but you're not hungry, well, then you're just fucking around.
1: Yes. You know? I think that's well, I think that's why I felt the need to pair them up in, yeah. in just presenting them. I, I absolutely one, one
0: hand that. why like one is important for the other essentially. Yeah, Right. You know, you have to, um, you do have to be focused and get yourself hungry and do that work. It has to be done, uh, because i think that the kind of procrastination that you're talking about uh, <laughs> as with everything on this show it's it's a matter of degree you know like if you've got everything piled up and then you procrastinate in my experience i don't do anything of value there but if i've done some things if i've allowed myself to get hungry and then i procrastinate a little bit about 100%
1: well, here's what I, th- I, look, I think you're threading the, 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 the very necessary line that needs to be drawn to make sense of either of, of these recommendations, but certainly the dynamics of how they, they work together mm. and how they need to work together in order to work at all or to be, uh, for procrastination to be justified in any way. But when I wrote that down or was thinking of that through on my porch, I realized that I was addressing indirectly uh, a phenomenon that I'm, I'm really picking up on with the memory side of the memory and alertness book, because although this seems obvious, it's not something that is mentioned you know in the literature generally, whether the formal academic or the very popular, that oftentimes our memory issues or problems are not I mean, maybe they're neurocardiovascular in some sort of way. Uh, Maybe they're age related, maybe they're genetic, maybe there could be all sorts of, but a lot of the times it's psychological, Mm -hmm. you know, people Mm -hmm. will say they they can't remember names well. Well, oftentimes that's because of the context and situation. They don't, Mm -hmm. Uh, they don't, for instance, in a business sense, they, they just don't like the, the work they're doing. They don't like having to remember people's names. They feel like they're having to to play a role and to be the kind of, you know, sales rep that's remembering names or, or whatever. Or maybe they don't, you know, a lot of our older people who are forgetting their grandkids, what they're really saying is they don't like those kids. You know, we're, we have to engage with some of that idea that that psychology influences everything, that it is the inescapable substratum of everything. So that when you do say to yourself, I really don't want to do X. So you're not just procrastinating, you're actually bringing that object out to take a look at and wander around. That's different than just put, you know, vaguely putting something off or, or just digging around, you know. Um you're, it's a little bit more formal. So you're starting to examine and you then might ask the question, well, why don't I want to do that? Do I actually have to do it? Do I, Have I said I'm going to do it? And, and it's that kind of honorable thing. Is it my job? Is it about money? Is it something that's, that I'm forced to do? Uh, you know, where does it really, and that's always a good question to ask. Do you really need to do it? Mm-hmm. So looking at those kinds of things, I think, just engages us with the psychology of, well, what would we really most want to do if we were calling the shots? And that's the big thing that we all want to do. We all want to be in control of our time all the time. And that fantasy is deeply worth prosecuting you know, very much because we were very quick to turn around and want the world outside to surprise us. We want chance and randomness. We want to meet someone new. We want something that isn't under our control and our stewardship. We want, you know, a kind of benign accident uh, to surprise us with delight and not terror or inconvenience. You know, Mm -hmm. we want a lot, you know, really. Mm -hmm. And thinking like this just helps us realize some of these fantasy programs we're running all the time behind the scenes, taking a lot of energy from our focus. And maybe we should just flush those out, bring them out into the open and see see what's going on with them, you know?
0: Absolutely. Have you been dreaming?
1: Well, here's and this is why I'm glad you've got sort of some really good material, because I, I feel I have a really big psychic conflict in the last week because I have been dreaming. I've had a very strong intuitive sense of some very, very rich, uh, intricate dreaming. And then I turned things around and looked very practically at my dream records. And I've got a couple of different ways. I've got my voice memo recording. I've got a dedicated notebook. And I realized that for all my kind of vague atmospheric feelings of having had some rich dreams, I don't have anything recorded. Mm -hmm. And two quotations of Kafka came to mind. The first is the essence of a secret code is that it remains a mystery and I did take some heart in that. I thought, well, dreams continue to influence us even if we don't fully remember them or record them or are able to articulate them. And to some extent, we need to always keep a delicate, you know, handle on dreams to, to be thinking of them more like the butterfly in the mouth of, you know, catching a fragile organic form, keeping it alive, not killing it in in our savoring and and somehow curation of it. But then I also thought of this one, which I really think is wonderful. If you have the strength to look at things steadily without, as it were, blinking your eyes, you can see much. But if you relax only once and shut your eyes, everything fades immediately into obscurity. So that was Kafka's way of reminding me that to take even a slight vacation from the dream recording discipline, which I've practiced for decades, really causes immense ripples of, of confusion and schism, because I know that I've had rich dreaming. So the conflict between those two things, the the hope on the one hand, the essence of a secret code is that it remains a mystery. But on the other hand, if you take your you know eyes off things for even a moment, all clarity, you know, starts to slip into obscurity. I then did, just at random, touch base with my uh, long-standing dream journals, and at random, I hit a mention of the Blue Begonia, a posh restaurant by a lake. That's all, just that one fragment recorded. Nothing, you know, not a good night's record of dreaming, really. But that little signal alone just opened up all sorts of channels of thinking again. And I felt like I'd gotten my balance back. So that's been my experience. I want to hear about yours.
0: The Blue Begonia was there to give you that message at that time. How cool. Well... Um, I received news that a friend of mine had passed away recently. He was somebody who I did not go to high school with. He went to a different high school in the same town, but we linked up shortly after. And we had a lot of uh, fun times partying together and There was a time where another friend of mine and I went on a a U.S. tour of performance art and poetry when we were very young. We went all over. We drove through uh, Montana, which if you've never driven through Montana, it's kind of terrifying. Open Mm. stretches of land that could rival Nevada, I'm sure, but very windy, very icy, and very rocky. And one of our stops was in Napa Valley where this friend of ours was working at a winery. And he took us on this great tour of the huge stainless steel vats. And uh, we got to stay in the guest house where the people who, the clients who were going to buy large quantities of this wine would stay, they had heated floors, which was crazy. Like, you could adjust the dial and the floors, heat it up if you wanted them to. This guy loved to party. Uh, he he passed away, unfortunately, due to what's called a whippet, which is nitrous oxide. Oh, yeah, little
1: whipped cream things, yeah.
0: Yeah, so you uh you buy the nitrous oxide, the balloons, and what is called a cracker from head shops. And you take the nitrous oxide, you put it in a cracker, twist it. You hear a noise, pssst,
1: and you hyperventilate.
0: You yeah, you put a balloon up next to it, fill the balloon up, suck the balloon out. I once bought a cracker because I thought that whippets were so cool, and do. the people and the people who I was doing uh, whippets with stole my cracker and thus ended my nitrous oxide uh, adventure. But not for him, and unfortunately, it gave him a heart attack because you know I'm 36, he's 34. And so his death was very interesting to me. And I started to have uh, very intense dreams after that. There was um, all of them recently take place in a cyberpunk type city where everybody has metal modifications to them. Lots of neon, lots of rain, very blade runner. And in my dream, I had a wound in my side and it was a nail. And I pulled the nail out and everybody was very concerned about this. All the people who were around me in my dream were all concerned about the wound. And as I moved through the city with them, the wound slowly began to close. Then I was teaching and the class ended and I took my class. I said, okay, we have to get to the next hour. And we walked out of the building onto this very long, uh, a very wide highway. There's a highway in Buenos Aires that I think is something like 19 lanes or something. It's the biggest highway in the world. And it was like that. It was that wide. And it was pouring down rain, gray, overcast. And we could see out in the distance was the, the school building that we had to get to, to get to their next hour. And I was in charge of stewarding all them. And we all had these black ball caps on. And I kept saying to them, like, make sure your hat stays on your head. If you can keep your hat on your head, you've got nothing to worry about. And then I woke up. But I've been thinking about that dream for a long time.
1: There's some amazing things going on there. You know, it's worth checking out the whole Fisher King.
0: Yeah, Ah, absolutely.
1: The wound, you know. So yep, yep, the, the constantly
0: cool. the wounded king who just yeah. fishes because he can't do anything. Oh yeah, no, I uh it's really funny you met because I was looking up the Fisher King recently. Um I went to the Wikipedia, the Fisher King. And uh yeah, the um Arthurian legend of the of the king who is constantly wounded and so can only fish. Uh that's interesting. Am I the Fisher King? Is that what you're saying? <laughs>
1: Well, I think it's, I mean, it's not, well, I mean, it. yes, it, it, that's one possibility. Uh, I, I don't think dream, you know, deeps deep motifs work in a, in a really easy one-to-one sort of ratio, but that's sure. certainly in the mix. The other thing that I pick up on is the wonderful ball cap thing and the kind of mm-hmm. sloganeering sort of phrasing of that. And that made me think of, uh, Kind of like Pink Floyd's, you know, uh, another brick in the wall, you know, the iconography of of British school children, sort of the regimentation, Mm -hmm. the uniformity, the notion of uniforms. And that's a strange, again, a, a nearer in time mythos to obviously, you know, the Fisher King, but you get that mythic level happening against a background of cyberpunk and Together, I think that's very interesting. That makes the cyberpunk background a lot more interesting. Um, The Whippet thing is fascinating to me. I'm very sorry to hear about your friend. I can imagine what that would be. I remember um, on my uh, life, one of the early life-changing experiences of being on the Greyhound, and to mm-hmm. acid and the Hydra Oklahoma Dust Devil experience. Mm-hmm. Well, Whippets featured on that too, because we were all the degenerates were in the back of the of the bus as as you'd expect. And they were quite a, an mm-hmm. interesting mixed bag, including a young chick who was kind of being passed around. And mm-hmm. so there was I I did I was tripping at, at quite a bit of the trip, but uh the other drugs circulating were just simply Jim Beam. Bit of dope and and whippets and the idea of them, I suppose. I mean, I thought of well, it's possible to have a stroke or something, um, but of course, you know, at being young, that didn't really even occur mm-hmm. to me. I thought, well, mm-hmm. this is, you know, I only stopped when it gave me a headache. But <laughs> I think it's interesting that uh, and of course, nitrous oxide was used as legitimate experimental drug by a lot of interesting people in the in the 19th century early 20th century uh benjamin paul blood who is someone worth checking out wrote some amazing stuff about reading hegel on nitrous oxide he was heavily involved in nitrous oxide it was kind of like in the same sort of uh circle as what people who were doing laudanum you know, it was really, mm-hmm. it was it was kind of an intellectual, recreational sort of drug. But I think that was very interesting. Uh, that's a level of. Detail that I think I think we need to sort of uh, have more balance in the dream segments, because I, I enjoy hearing, you know, your, your sense of that. I think that's really.
0: Apparently, mine is alive and well. Um, it was alive and well last night two uh although unfortunately i can't freaking remember it although it dominated my morning thoughts um but yeah i'll keep some better records and we'll talk about this week because apparently my my psychic weather i have this whole thing that i was telling you about where i feel like um the town that i grew up in is cursed by a wendigo right? Now, the Wendigo is a Native American spirit. Um, It's mostly associated with um, cannibalism, Mm -hmm. although it can be thought of in general as just kind of just a bad vibe, you know? And once I started reading more and more about the Wendigo and this, you know, this kind of consumptive demon, um, it really made sense to me what happened to my friend group. Right. And the people who are able to get a hold on that consumption are doing fine, but people like Fletcher rest in peace. Uh, couldn't get a hold on it. Just never stopped, you know, and Rios has felt it too, you know, coming back to this town. She's like, there's just something off about this whole place. And I say, yeah, it's a Wendigo. It's an evil spirit, you know? Um, and, there are other people who are either less sensitive to it or have more protection toward it who can live here and be completely fine. But if you're sensitive, it it gets into you. So I kind of see, uh, you know, Fletcher's death as the Wendigo finally taking him. I look at it as a very spooky kind of thing.
1: Uh, Is this sort of larger mood uh giving you new thoughts about being where you are and in your living situation or
0: no um no because i have also been writing a lot more now that i got back you know uh by the time and low down death right easy were both written while here uh i've been kind of writing about these places since i left And even when I started doing uh, cyberpunk literature, there is a character who has these kind of deer antlers that come out of his head Mm -hmm. cybernetically. And the Wendigo in many popular depictions is a deer headed man. So I think there's a kind of spooky, slightly dangerous uh, interplay between my art creation and this being that I'm interested in from a distance, uh, uh, finding, finding a a safe way to contain it.
1: I like that. I think that's, that's, is the nature of the artist. I really think that, uh, it's essential to sort of strike that, you know, balance and it's going to be constantly some sort of fight. It's, it's, it's osmotic it's permeability It's Mm -hmm. going backwards and forwards forwards to the membranes. But I mean, and Nietzsche said you know be careful not to throw out all your monsters because you might lose the best part of yourself and I think artists often do that and when you ever you mix that or de- the idea of real of demons and spirits in with uh addictive substances I mean it's a lot of dangerous stuff mm-hmm. and I I it's, you know, it's like um you know, blowfish or you know, it can be very dangerous to cook, it could be deadly, and yet it can mm-hmm. be a delicacy, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think artists need to really, you know, have that sense of danger and that sense of risk. And to some extent, this is exactly what's been eliminated by the MFA programs, by mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. of uh the memory palace is trying to encroach on the swamp, and the swamp won't have anything to do with it. And uh, right. I, I think it's good that you're 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 committed to some sort of combat over the edge of the abyss on on this because that's bull the only place. yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah bull riding basically yeah it, that's what being an artist is it's bull riding um
1: well you kind of um, look like a young rodeo star in a lot of ways you could pull that off in a role
0: right exactly that's that is well in the last novel that i released it ends with a massacre by the deer-headed man at a cyberpunk rodeo so, again, sending myself signals from the future back into the past is very interesting there. But I do think that, uh, you know, if you're cool, you should look at art as a kind of bull riding exercise. It should be something that could kill you. Uh, but not if you approach it respectfully and carefully and, you know handle it the way it wants to be handled and also like the bull is a living thing it's not something that you can necessarily wrangle at all times and you have to make space for that too like when the bull takes over you have to make sure you're far away from people when that happens but
1: yeah well you know the funny thing which is also a really sad thing is so many people want to be able to wrangle everything and what they really think of is stuff that doesn't need wrangling
0: Mm. the whole
1: Mm -hmm. point of wrangling what a great word is that yeah it's Mm -hmm. wild you get kicked in the head you could get dragged you could get eaten you you know Mm -hmm. that's the whole deal with wrangling you know it wouldn't be wrangling if it weren't if it weren't for the risk you know
0: don't dangerous. Yeah, And so all these people who want to, you know, I don't know, write books and deal with their trauma, deal with your trauma? Fuck that, like wrangle it. Wrangle it. Doesn't mean it ever goes away. I did have that thought. Interesting thing based on this conversation. Um, I don't remember the dream I had last night, but I did wake up. Remember, this was like in my in my thoughts while I was getting ready for work and the most prominent thought that I had this morning and it wasn't scary or sad or anything. It was just uh, you are never going to get rid of me. And I said, oh, okay." And the idea behind that was what that you better learn how to deal with me because I'm not going away. I said okay.
1: I think that's uh, you know an uneasy peace is the only mm-hmm. kind of peace there can ever be, but otherwise, you know, I think I think we'd call it boredom and despair. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what the the too easy peace that people so often settle for the too easy distraction. You know, and if they get out and do some more wrangling and more accepting of some of the strangeness that's on board. I mean, it's 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 really quite a weird, you know, stowaway situation, you know.
0: Absolutely. All right. Bedtime.
1: Yes. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, listeners. This is episode 170, I think.
0: Yeah, right. I think you're right, 170, golly.
1: Well, we have excitement in store coming up. We are going to start introducing some guests. We're going to continue to explore some of these themes. I'm going to moot that next episode, we're going to be looking into another aspect of the Memory Palace Swamp Oscillation, the extremely strange and defining human idea, I believe. Of the counterintuitive. Whoa, you know,
0: <laughs>
1: intuition alone, the intuitive is, is as murky and mysterious as anything can possibly get. So, therefore, the counterintuitive could be all the murkier and more mysterious, or it could be the definition of clarity. So, we've got something to uh, to go hunting after next time.